Wow, ladies and gentlemen, come at you fast. It's Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Nico and my guest today. Drum roll, please. Professor Barry Sullivan. Professor Sullivan joined the show to talk about his time as a civil rights attorney, arguing in front of the Supreme Court, and his thoughts on legal education. There's really not too much more I can say about this. Uh, the man does it better himself, so I will just leave it here. So without any further ado, please give it up for my friend, your friend, all of our friend, the great and powerful Professor Barry Sullivan. All right, yeah, let's just go. Okay. All right. Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. I'm Nico Espina. And we're here with Professor Sullivan. How's it going, Sully? Great. How are you? Good. Great. You are like the lost Ark of Loyola. We've been trying to do this since September. Well, all good things come to them that wait. <laughs> <laughs> the Lion of Loyola. All right. So um, we're just going to be mostly talking about you as a person, right? I mean, we have a, a laundry list of stuff, but I say we just start at the beginning. Well, let's go. All right. So you were saying that as a law student, you clerked for a federal judge? Well, after I graduated from law school, uh, my first job uh, was clerking for a federal judge in New Orleans. New Orleans. Um, was that like federal? That was uh, what, what judge was that? Uh, judge Wisdom of the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit in those days covered the entire South, what's now the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, as well as the Panama Canal Zone. So it was a very interesting place to clerk. The, the first assignment I got actually uh, was a case from the Panama Canal Zone, and the question was whether the uh, Jury Selection Act applied to the Canal Zone. And it was pretty hard to get a cross-section of the community in the canal zone because of uh, the fact that most of the people who worked there were in the military. Hmm. Wait, can you, can you explain that a little bit more? Wait, what, what was the exact complication? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, that it was a, a district that was very unlike any other district because of the fact that, that the... Uh, population, the U.S. population there was largely military personnel. Mm -hmm. and, and that would exempt them. Why? Well, I, I think uh, this is, you know, 40 years ago, uh, so I'm having a hard time uh, calling it up, but uh, my recollection was that you're right, that the, the uh, military personnel were exempt from, from jury service, and they're for how did you get a cross-section of the community out of the few people that were eligible for, uh, for jury duty. But my recollection is that the Jury Service and Selection Act didn't apply in the, uh, in the canal zone, I think was the outcome of the case. Huh. Huh. Is it, is it do you know uh, what, under what circuit now the, um, 
Um, so the 11th Circuit grew out of the 5th Circuit. Yeah, they, when they, did this happen? They, this happened, uh, I think it was in 1981, that Congress finally split the two circuits, uh, or split the circuit into two circuits. Um, the eastern part of the circuit was Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and uh, the western part of the circuit was uh, Louisiana, uh, Texas, Mississippi, and there had been a lot, they, at the time, it was the largest circuit, I think, in the country. Well, yeah, that's like a quarter of the country. Yeah. <laughs> um, and whether it should be split was a very hotly contested question for many, many years, in part because the senators and congressmen from the eastern part of the, of the circuit uh, really didn't like the uh, nature of the civil rights opinions that were coming out of the entire circuit. And the most pro-civil rights judges were in Texas and Louisiana. And so they thought that if they could split the circuit, they could effectively change the law. Mm -hmm. And um, and this, of course, the, the judges from Texas and Louisiana in particular didn't want to be split off. They thought that this provided for the larger area provided for a more cosmopolitan court. And uh, and Mississippi uh, wanted the, the senators from Mississippi really would prefer to go with the eastern part of the circuit rather than the western part of the circuit. But from viewpoint of splitting the circuit uh, in terms of uh, distribution of work, that didn't really make sense. And so there were there was both opposition to splitting the circuit altogether hmm. from some quarters and uh, opposition to splitting it in one way or another from other quarters. And that's why it basically got stalled for 10 years, I think. And the, the, like, um, the straw that broke the camel's back being what do we remember? I mean, because well, uh, eventually it got to be so large that it was unwieldy. Mm -hmm. uh, the in-bank court, when I was clerking, uh, when the court, all the judges of the circuit sat as a single court, they had to have a horseshoe-shaped bench mm -hmm. because there were so many. And after I was clerking, they actually put in a second horseshoe behind the horseshoe because the circuit got to be so large. And, uh, and the case law, of course, was very hard to keep up with because that many judges producing opinions day after day uh, became you know, very hard to, to make sure that one uh, panel of the court wasn't deciding an issue one way and another panel of the court at the same time was deciding uh, the same issue a different way. Now, I don't want to make you disclose your age on air, but <laughs> <laughs> so you, while you were clerking, there was resistance from the, what you said, the 
eastern part of the circuit due to the civil rights decisions that were coming out, or was that the western? The western. The western. The western judges tended to be in favor of preserving the whole circuit uh, because they were pro-civil rights judges, I think. Right. And, uh, and the eastern judges, uh, I think, more or less were would be happy to happy to split the circuit right but by the time the circuit was eventually split hopefully was were those tensions and animosity towards the civil rights uh you know decisions coming down was that mostly subsided or have you no knowledge of that well that was long after my time right, right. 1980 was or 81 uh was when the circuit was finally split and I think by then the court had grown so large that even the judges, like my judge, who opposed uh, the circuit split for a long time, had pretty much decided that it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But they, the, the court was a really interesting court because uh, you had all these civil rights cases uh, you also had uh, a good number of securities uh, cases and antitrust cases, hmm. uh, and you had oil and gas cases from right. uh, Texas uh, in Louisiana. Uh, you also had the difference that Louisiana was a civil law jurisdiction, and so the diversity cases that came out of Louisiana would would depend on uh, the Louisiana Civil Code rather than common law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a very interesting place uh, to clerk, and the judges uh, were themselves very interesting, the, um, especially the more senior judges who had been around from the beginning of the civil rights movement. So it, it, it seems um, that there was an administrative need to break down the Fifth Circuit at the time, but what really drove the agenda of the split was mostly political. Um, and, and today, there's a lot of um, animosity towards um, the judicial branch being politicized. Was that a sentiment shared back then by the general public? Well, certainly, uh, many of the decisions that the Fifth Circuit made were very unpopular decisions. Uh, The judge I clerked for uh, had rattlesnakes thrown in his garden. People would call his house all hours of the night to keep him up. Uh, He received incredible amounts of hate mail. Uh, And that was true of of many of the judges uh, who felt it was their duty to enforce Brown against the Board of Education. Uh, against um, strong local sentiments to the contrary. Well, you know, actually rattlesnakes could be a religious symbol in some parts of the South, so maybe they were congratulating him. Uh, Well, (laughs) uh, and the crosses that were burned, too, you know. Um, So you're a New Englander guy like me, and then you went to law school in Chicago, right? Yeah. So how was the uh, culture shock from going from, you know, Chicago down to Louisiana? Well, the culture shock was mostly driving through Mississippi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Louisiana, and particularly New Orleans, is a very different place. I mean, it's a, 
it's a quite unique city in the South because of the fact that it's a port and uh, has traditionally had a very diverse population, uh, diverse cultural values. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really a very pleasant place to, to spend a year. But then again, I mean, I guess uh, we up in New England are populated by a lot of the French and they would be down there too. So maybe, did you know how to say everybody's last name? And <laughs> Well, it's interesting you should, should bring that up because... Um, uh, I did, and uh, I grew up in uh, in a town where um, there was a substantial French Canadian population, mm-hmm. and uh, my parents sent me for uh, kindergarten through eighth grade to a French speaking school, right. and uh, it did come in handy when I was in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, so. While you were clerking for the judge in Louisiana, um, much of the technological advances we have today at our disposal were not readily available. So could you just walk us through what it was like to clerk without the internet at your disposition? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, we did have some important um, crutches. Uh, and as I was saying earlier, that that one of the uh, problems that uh, that the court faced was this burgeoning case law, and at that time, uh, most federal courts of appeals were having their opinions printed in slip opinion form by the government printing office, and. Uh, the Fifth Circuit decided that they wouldn't do that. They would have their slip opinions printed by West. And so that when you, when the judge signed off on an opinion and the other two judges on the panel signed off on an opinion, instead of going to the government printing office, it went to West Publishing. And it came back from West Publishing in slip opinion form already with headnotes. And that meant that as soon as it was published, it had headnotes. And West also provided the judges and the law clerks with a digest of recent uh, Fifth Circuit opinions like every two weeks or every month so that we could keep up with the cases that were being decided by other panels of the court. And since when you're on a court like the Fifth Circuit, the most important thing uh, from the viewpoint of precedent is the body of precedent of that court. That was a very helpful thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, particularly in areas that were very hot areas in that time, like prison litigation, Title VII litigation, uh, and so forth, uh, having that digest at your disposal really was the next best thing to having Westlaw or Lexis, which came out just shortly after my clerkship. Hmm. So... um Moving 
on a little bit, it looks like at some point you made your way back up to Chicago, right? Working for Jenner and Block? I did. I After my clerkship, uh, I took a job with Jenner and Block. Right. Um, and at that point in time, Jenner and Block was still one of the bigger law firms in Chicago? or It was one of the biggest law firms in Chicago, and it was about 75 or 80 lawyers at the time. So what we would call, you know, a drop in the bucket these days. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and it was a nice size law firm to get started in, right? Uh, because you know, soon you knew everybody in the firm, mm -hmm. uh, and they knew you, and um, you know, it was a it was a good place to work. Were they still like kind of an all purpose law firm at that time, or were they focusing on one area in particular? Well, we were an all-purpose law firm. We had a corporate department. We had, uh, you know, trusts and estates and labor and, and so on. Uh, but I would say that the, the vast majority of lawyers either were litigators or had been litigators. And is that what you did? I did litigation, yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that it was the ideal size. So today it would be analogous to a, a smaller, medium-sized firm. With about 80 lawyers. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I work at Gould and Ratner, and that's about how many attorneys we right. have. Right. And yeah. then I guess this allowed for, you know, a level of human interconnectivity that perhaps you don't get today in the larger law firms. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, um, you know, larger law firms are a lot different these days than they were in those days, obviously, because of size. Uh, but, you know, within a few months of joining the firm, I was able to work with Mr. Jenner, for example. No way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, 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 um, so were you able to, so a part of the problem with big law firms today is that you don't really get to see, you know, from soup to nut cases through to the end. Like usually you'll have your hand in one specific piece of it, but were you handling cases right out of the, the gate or shortly thereafter? Well, the, the rule at Jenner in those days was that, um, you know, we had some big cases. And uh, the rule was that an associate shouldn't be assigned to more than one big case. And 50% of his or her time uh, should be on smaller cases. Mm -hmm. And so you did get to, to work on smaller cases that... You know, it's it's still hard even in a small case to see it quickly from beginning to end. Uh, but you did get an opportunity to do that, and you got an opportunity um, to work with a senior litigator as second chair pretty quickly on one of those kinds of cases. At the same time, uh, we had uh, a particularly strong reputation for being willing to take on unpopular cases and pro bono cases. And so uh, you were able to get a lot of really good experience uh, being first chair in your own case, uh, taking on a pro bono matter. So how did those pro bono matters help you grow as a lawyer? I know a lot of uh, young lawyers tend to shy away from them simply because there's no um, monetary incentive. 
well, yeah, when you have like $800 of loans due every month, you know, <laughs> right, it, but, it's but, nice to be altruistic, but... <laughs> well, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we weren't careful about the bottom line, uh, <laughs> but, the, you know, the, the, I think that the associates who went to work um, at Jenner and at other firms that were committed to pro bono work in those days, and not an awful lot of firms were. Mm -hmm. uh, but the associates who went to work at those firms, I think, recognized, A, that they were going to get really good experience working on those cases, and B, that, that they really had a professional responsibility to work on those cases, and probably they were going to have to work a little bit harder because they were still going to have to, uh, you know, have sufficient billable hours uh, as lawyers and other firms did. And so this was sort of extra. <clears throat> but it gave you great experience. And, you know, I, I took depositions uh, within a few months of joining the firm. Uh, I worked on a pro bono appeal uh, that I argued about the anniversary of my, first anniversary of my joining the firm. What, what year was that? Uh, 1976. 1976. <clears throat> and what was, do you remember that, what, which appeal that was? Uh, it was a case involving, um, the, the world would be a different place if, if uh, that case had actually gone somewhere. <laughs> uh, it was uh, an action brought by a group of prisoners in the Indiana Penitentiary. And uh, their action had been dismissed at the pleading stage. Uh, they filed a pro se appeal to the Seventh Circuit, and uh, we were appointed to represent them on appeal. They were complaining that they were essentially being cold storaged as prisoners, and that they ought to have the right for educational uh, and vocational training. What do you mean cold storage, exactly? That, that they were just being held oh, okay. right. in yeah. prison and being given no opportunity to, for rehabilitation. <clears throat> okay. and, um, and the court ruled uh, in their favor and said that they stated a claim. Uh, and unfortunately, once the Seventh Circuit ruled in their favor, uh, they seemed to have lost interest in the case. And I wrote to them to tell them that the Seventh Circuit had, had ruled in their favor, and I looked forward to representing them further, and I never heard from them again. But it was an incredibly, you know, it could have been an yeah, incredibly right. important case. Absolutely, yeah. So then um, one case that I know you, you mentioned in Nico, this seems like it's about a decade later, is the... Time flies. Uh, <laughs> is the People v. Wilson case, and you were still at Jenner at that point. That's right. Yeah. Um, can you? Do, would you mind summarizing that case a little bit for the listeners? Because it's, it's a really interesting case. Well, uh, two brothers, uh, Andrew and Jackie Wilson, uh, were apprehended by the Chicago police and charged with the murder of two Chicago police officers. Uh, they were tried and both were convicted. Uh, Jackie Wilson 
uh, was convicted and sentenced to a term of years. Uh, Andrew Wilson uh, was convicted and given the death penalty. And uh, as I recall, Andrew Wilson had been represented by um, the public defender in his trial. Uh, Jackie Wilson had been represented by retained counsel. And uh, the public defender uh, wanted to represent Jackie Wilson on appeal. There was there were conflicting, uh, interlocking confessions, and there was a serious conflict of interest between the two clients. And uh, so the public defender wanted to get out of representing ja uh, Andrew and only represent Jackie. And the trial judge um, declined to let them do that unless they could find someone uh, who was willing to undertake the representation of uh, Andrew Wilson in his appeal. And of course, the case got to be, I mean, just uh, procedurally was, was somewhat strange because, of course, there was only one transcript. But Jackie's case, because he wasn't sentenced to death, was going to go to the Illinois Appellate Court, whereas the law in those days provided for a direct appeal to the Supreme Court in a capital uh, death penalty case. And uh, so the first, uh, well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, the, the judge said that if the public defender could find a partner in a major firm who would be willing to represent Andrew, he would let the public defender out, and, uh, and that's how I came to represent Andrew. Uh, the case, and as I say, the, the first practical uh, problem that we faced was that Jackie had the transcript and, and had it sent to the appellate court, and the trial judge didn't want to authorize another transcript to be prepared. Uh, so we had to go to war with the, the trial judge to secure just a copy of the transcript. Uh, the case turned out to be an extraordinarily complicated case uh, because of the number of novel issues presented. Mm -hmm. One of the principal issues had to do with the, the selection of the jury. And... Uh, the trial judge, because the two uh, defendants each had um, their own number of peremptory challenges, the trial judge, as I recall, allowed the state double the number of peremptory challenges that the state would normally have. And this allowed the, um, the trial judge, uh, I'm sorry, this allowed uh, the state uh, to effectively uh, block every African-American on the veneer from serving on the jury. Uh, and this, of course, was before the Supreme Court decided Batson against Kentucky. Which we'll get to. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so that was a major issue in the case. Uh, this 
discriminatory use of peremptory challenges. Uh, another issue in the case was uh, hypnotically induced identification evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Which, so what did that entail? <laughs> <laughs> Which was a case of first impression in Illinois on that issue as well. Uh, what happened uh, between the time of the crime and the time uh, Andrew and Jackie Wilson were arrested, the police had focused on them and their pictures were in all the Chicago newspapers. Oh, great. Uh, there was one witness who uh, was able to identify uh, Andrew. I can't remember whether she identified Jackie. That wasn't my, my business. <laughs> uh, but she was able to identify Andrew uh, after this publicity and after she was hypnotized in order to be able to recall uh, better what she had seen. She had been an eyewitness, but she was a little squishy on her, on her testimony. So um, was there a hypnotist on retainer at the Chicago Police Department? Or? <laughs> uh, there, was, there was a psychologist who performed hypnosis who apparently was being used by the police department. So that was another issue. And then there were uh, issues pertaining to uh, interlocking confessions um, and so forth. Uh, the case uh, eventually, uh, oh, and, and I'm leaving out the, the biggest issue. Uh, the biggest issue had to do with the voluntariness of his confession. Mm -hmm. uh, that um, he maintained that uh, he had been held against uh, a hot radiator uh, and his chest had been burned, other parts of his body had been burned, uh, other parts of his body that I won't go into had uh, had electrodes attached to them. Was this the John Burge? This was the John Burge team, yes. Mm, okay. Um, and um, so the question was, um, was his, his confession voluntary? Before we continue, can you just, um, what, what's the John Burge team? Uh, well, Barry might be able to describe it better than I, but... There was a big scandal, I believe it was in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, one Chicago police officer in particular was, I believe, prosecuted. Um, but there, it, it was believed to be a widespread scandal where they would take like tasers and hold it up against suspects' testicles. Um, it gets more graphic than that in order to elicit confessions from suspected criminals, although it ended up being the case that I believe a lot of those criminals ended up walking eventually um, because these were just horrific torture tactics. Um, but that's neither here nor there. We and, and, and Andrew Wilson, uh, since you've described the, the, uh, what exactly happened, I'll confirm that that is what happened to Andrew Wilson. Yeah. So. Uh, and John Burge... Uh, was the commander in a particular area, a police area in Chicago, 
And um, once the conviction in this case was reversed, um, then a number of other convictions were also reversed afterwards. Uh, and eventually, um, so many convictions were reversed that uh, that uh, uh, the governor uh, lost faith, who had been a, a strong proponent of the death penalty. Right. Uh, governor Ryan lost faith in the death penalty, and he declared a moratorium on the death penalty mm -hmm. in Illinois, which uh, eventually the General Assembly Right. Uh, abolished the about, death penalty. About 10 years. I think it was 2011, Governor Quinn signed into law an abolition of the death penalty because it was just so rampant. But. <clears throat> and, the, and the Wilson case was decided by the Illinois Supreme Court in, I, I think, 1986. Mm -hmm. Westlaw confirms it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, go, go on um, with with your work and, and how you work. So uh, one of the interesting questions in the case was, well, the police department, uh, the state's attorney, uh, argued that um, uh, they weren't responsible for the injuries that he had sustained. And at oral argument, the assistant state's attorney argued uh, in response to a question, as I recall, that it must have been some unknown enemy of the people uh, who did this, someone who got into the police station and wanted to uh, make the police look bad or something. And, that, um, and, and so the question, it was an interesting legal question. There was a, uh, a case that had been argued by Justice Stevens when Justice Stevens was still a lawyer in private practice in Chicago, a case called People Against Lafrana from about 1952 or so. And that case basically said that if someone is in police custody and gives a confession and is mistreated and has physical injuries, uh, the state has the obligation of proving that those injuries occurred after he gave his confession rather than before, kind of res ipsa locator mm -hmm. kind of rule. And uh, the state's attorney in the case argued that this, was, this case should be overruled uh, because police tactics were very different now than they were in the early 1950s, and, and there was no need anymore for that kind of a rule. And, um, and I'm happy to say that, uh, that the Supreme Court of Illinois declined the invitation to <laughs> overrule that case. We get some things right, yeah. <clears throat> and they eventually, of course, did uh, overturn the conviction. <clears throat> so how how did this case or your involvement in this case uh, play a role in um, I think you worked for the Solicitor Gen General for a while was that correct that was before this case that was before this case yeah okay um, so well I, I don't I don't know if we want to jump back but 
um, if you could just briefly describe what it was like to work for the Solicitor General. It was a very interesting time, particularly to be working for the Solicitor General. It was uh, the end of the Carter administration, and I stayed on in the first few months of the Reagan administration. Um, the one of the things that was well, several things were very interesting about it. First of all, uh, as you know, in the 19, under President Nixon, um, there was a lot of uh, legislation relating to the environment and uh, to occupational safety and health. And when I was in the Solicitor General's office, uh, the rules that OSHA and EPA and others were promulgating to implement those statutes uh, were finally being promulgated and being adjudicated by the courts of appeals and moving up to the Solicitor General's office. And uh, so I got to work on a number of um, really significant, very interesting uh, regulatory cases uh, involving uh, workers' health and environmental matters. Uh, one of the cases that I worked on uh, was <clears throat> the case involving occupational exposure to cotton dust, for example, which is now a case that you read in administrative law uh, case books. And, um, so that was that was very interesting. These were, you know, incredibly important uh, regulations and standards that had been promulgated. Uh, and then, of course, what happened was um, President Carter lost the election, and President Reagan came to office. And uh, President Reagan didn't think that the Solicitor General was a very significant position. And so he didn't have anybody picked out uh, at the beginning of his administration uh, to hold that job. And so uh, he asked Judge McCree, uh, who was, had been a Sixth Circuit judge from Detroit, uh, one of the earliest, uh, most prominent African-American federal judges, uh, he asked Judge McCree to stay on as Solicitor General. And Judge McCree said, well, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to stay on, but only if I'm able to exercise the full traditional authority of the Solicitor General. Mm -hmm. And um, the president said, yes, of course. Well, part of the responsibility of the Solicitor General is to make judgment calls when, for example, different parts of the government want to take different positions in litigation. Mm -hmm. And um, this led to some very interesting uh, inside baseball uh, stuff that went on in the area of civil rights enforcement, in the area of um, occupational safety and health. Uh, in fact, the cotton dust case was uh, Argued. I didn't argue it. One of my colleagues argued it. 
uh, was argued the day after President Reagan's inauguration, I think, and within a very short time, the Solicitor General had to deal with a request from the new Secretary of Labor that uh, the United States change position in the case after the case had been argued and submitted. Any other notable examples of some inside baseball? Well, of course, this was also the time, but I guess this was a little later. Uh, Judge McCree stayed on until the end of the Supreme Court term, and I had another case that I wanted to argue orally uh, in the court that wasn't uh, going to be called for argument until October or November, so I stayed on during the fall to argue that case. Um, and during that time, uh, there were a lot of reversals of, of position uh, in a lot of civil rights cases, uh, because the other thing that I had been doing in the Justice Department was uh, most of my docket was occupational safety and health, um, environmental, and uh, civil rights cases. Like EEOC cases? Mostly EEOC cases yeah. is mostly what was going on at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also, uh, one of the cases uh, that I worked on um, was the Seattle school busing case of 1982, uh, I guess. Um, and, um, and that was a case in which the Carter administration had um, supported the um, proponents of the referendum in Washington. Uh, I'm sorry, no, the opponents of the referendum in Washington uh, which prohibited the city of Seattle and the city of Tacoma uh, from engaging in um, uh, affirmative action uh, in, in school assignments. And um, the opponents of the, the plan, uh, which was basically to mix up the kids in the city schools, uh, through busing, uh, had, they had won at the local level in Seattle and Tacoma. And uh, so the opponents of that decided that they would take the dispute statewide and have a statewide referendum. And the opponents won statewide, even though Seattle and Tacoma were the only two cities that were really substantially being affected by this. Sure. And um, that, uh, and so the Carter administration had been on the side of uh, the city of Seattle and the city of Tacoma. Uh, the Reagan administration came in in the Supreme Court on the side of the state of Washington in support of this referendum that had prevented. Seattle and Tacoma from doing this. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> well, so, oh man, my mic, hold on. Test, test, test. All right, much better. Um, so, since we're on the topic of the Supreme Court, um, and we've already touched on your work 
uh, with the what was the name of the case again? Uh, uh, People v. Wilson case, yeah. which had a lot to do with jury selection. Let's talk about the amicus brief that you helped author in support of Batson v. Kentucky, because I think that that's an interesting case. Mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people touch on it in con law, maybe a little bit in Civ Pro, but let's just get into the full disposition of that case. And um, that case is still echoing through the halls of history today. I mean, uh, just last week. Yeah, Flowers v. Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. So right. let's talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, I got very interested in the problem of, uh, of racial discrimination in jury selection as a result of uh, my work in, in the Wilson case. And, uh, and I'd had some contacts with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights when I was in the Justice Department. And uh, so I picked up the phone uh, after cert was granted in Batson, uh, and I called the uh, executive director of the Lawyers Committee, and I said, uh, you know, I know that you mostly get involved in civil cases, uh, but there's this criminal case, Batson against Kentucky, that was cert was granted yesterday, and I really think the Lawyers Committee ought to be involved in this, and I just wanted to make sure that you're aware of the case. And, um, and the executive director of the Lawyers Committee, Bill Robinson, uh, said to me, well, thank you so much for your offer uh, to write the brief in that case, uh, which had not been my intention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, so I ended up writing the brief in that case, and I wrote the brief uh, in, I think, three or four follow-up cases on the issue of uh, racial discrimination in jury selection. Uh, it was a very interesting, Batson itself was a very interesting case from viewpoint of the development of federal constitutional law uh, because there had been decided a case, uh, the court had decided a case back in about 1965, I think, called Swain against Alabama. And Swain against Alabama said that the only way to prove racial discrimination in jury selection was to prove a pattern in practice of racial discrimination in jury selection in a particular jurisdiction. So that you had to ha you had to compile all the records of all the venier people uh, who were called and all of those who were excused and those who served uh, in every case in the jurisdiction. Sounds easy enough. <laughs> and of course, these records just didn't exist. Right, right. You know, they were notes on the backs of envelopes uh, that, you know, were written by the lawyers in the case. They didn't, there wasn't any official compilation. And uh, so the question was, will the court, at least to me, the question was, um, will the court be willing to overrule Swain against Alabama? And the, some members of the court had been sending uh, signals in uh, dissents or concurrences to denials of certiorari 
mm -hmm. uh, over the last year or two saying basically defense lawyers um, eventually we're going to get to this so don't give up keep, uh -huh. keep urging the issue in the lower courts Justice Marshall for example wrote a uh, a dissent, as I recall, in a from denial of certiorari in a case called McCray against New York. Mm -hmm. Swain had been a 14th Amendment case, and one theory that I didn't think was a very good theory was that Swain could stand, but the court would find that it was a violation of another amendment like the Sixth Amendment, for example, and that you could win by just saying to the court, ignore the Fourteenth Amendment arguments, just zero in on the Sixth Amendment and, uh, and decide as a matter of Sixth Amendment law that this is prohibited. Uh, to me, that didn't make any sense. Right. And so I, in my brief, I paid lip service to that argument as the second argument. But my first argument was Swain was wrongly decided. It's a derelict on the law. Uh, lots of other areas of civil rights law have developed in a way that's inconsistent with Swain. And this court ought to bite the bullet and overrule Swain against Alabama. Um, when I first filed my brief, the lawyer for Mr. Batson uh, asked me if I would share his oral argument time because he had not, he didn't have the oral argument in the Supreme Court experience that I had and he thought I could be helpful. But then as he read my brief carefully, uh, he found that it was really inconsistent with his theory because he had put all the eggs in the Sixth Amendment basket and he didn't want uh, the 14th Amendment to be raised at, um, at oral argument. And so he withdrew his gracious invitation. And uh, so the case was eventually decided by the court. Uh, the court uh, rejected his argument and uh, they accepted the argument that Swain should be overruled. And um, the interest, one interesting thing uh, about the case is that um, Chief Justice Berger dissents, and he argues in his dissent that the court is reaching out to decide a question that's not properly presented to the court. Uh, and he cites, I think, three pages of the oral argument transcript uh, from Batson's lawyer in which he says, uh, don't reach the 14th Amendment question. That's not before the court. It's only the Sixth Amendment argument that's before the court. And Justice Stevens uh, seems to be the hero of this story. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Justice Stevens writes a concurrence in, in which he says um, the lawyers committee for the civil uh, for civil rights under law uh, raised this point uh, the 
NAACP Legal Defense Fund also raised the point. Uh, the state of Kentucky, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, responded to those points. Uh, the only person in this case who didn't realize that the 14th Amendment was involved was, was Mr. Batson's <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> so the court is perfectly right, right in addressing right. this argument. Yeah, so he was the only one who thought you were too precocious. Yeah. Um, and then I went on to uh, to do several other briefs on the question. Uh, there was another case, Griffiths against Kentucky, whether it should be applied to cases that were pending on direct review. And then there was Teague against Wilson, uh, Teague against uh, Lane, um, that uh, involved the question whether it should apply to questions uh, to cases that were on collateral review at the time that Batson was decided. And one of the interesting things uh, about my, my association with the Lawyers Committee was that um, this was about three or four years that this strain of cases went on. And uh, after that was over for a while, it was only in about 2002, I guess, I got asked to uh, to do another uh, Batson-type case by the Lawyers Committee. But the next year after this particular run of cases was over, I got a call from, uh, from uh, the director of the Lawyers Committee. And uh, uh, he said, I, I don't have a case for you, but I have an assignment for you. Uh, I'm the chair this year of the Section of Individual Rights and Responsibilities of the ABA. And uh, the president of the ABA uh, and I would like to appoint you to be chair of a new commission on AIDS and the law. Uh, we need to have a commission that will uh, investigate all of the legal issues that are implicated by the AIDS epidemic. This is. Uh, November or December of 1987. Okay, so this is this is right in the right in the throes. Right. Reagan is still president. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and this uh, uh, HIV has become a major issue uh, in society and in the legal profession. Uh, you know, at this time, uh, bailiffs uh, are wearing hazmat suits if they have a, uh, a prisoner who uh, is HIV positive. I mean, there's all this kind of hysteria around AIDS. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Bill Robinson uh, said um, that Bob McCrae, the president of the ABA, ABA, and he had talked over who would be an appropriate chair for this commission, and I was their choice. And I said, well, you know, with all uh, humility, said, Bill, the only thing I know about HIV is what I read in the New York Times. And he said, well, I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but that's really why we think you're the ideal candidate for this position. Said, we're going to have people on this commission representing every part of the ABA, the tort lawyers on the defense side, on the on the plaintiff's side, 
uh, immigration lawyers, labor lawyers, and they're all going to have opinions on this, and we need somebody who can bring all these people together. And right. we think you're the person who can make a consensus out of this. So you were just there to play referee, kind of? Or? Well, I mean, I did more than that, as it turned out, but he wanted somebody who was going to be able to, to mold these, right. these disparate opinions into one work product. So uh, could you just... Um, I mean, I can probably conjure up some ideas, but let's just hear it from the horse's mouth. Like, what were the major issues of the day as it related to that commission? Like, what what kind of uh, problems were people with HIV experiencing other than their imminent death? Uh, employment discrimination. Right. Uh, doctors uh, with HIV uh, were being told they couldn't operate on, on patients. Uh, patients were being turned aside by doctors who didn't have HIV. Mm -hmm. um, immigration, uh, things involving the State Department, um, you name it. It was, right. uh, we came up with something like uh, 21 different areas of the law uh, that were being affected by, uh, by uh, the epidemic. Mm -hmm. And when I was first approached, I was, I was told that the deadline for this was that they wanted us to solve all these problems uh, by the summer meeting of the ABA. Mm -hmm. And um, I quite wisely said, I don't think we can do that. Right. And um, they said, well, try. And then they didn't get around to appointing the rest of the members of the commission until January or February. And I said, well, you know, it's impossible. What I'll do is this group will write a white paper uh, between now and June when things have to go to press, and we will identify all of the issues that are presented and we will identify the various strategies for addressing them, what the range of answers might be. And, uh, and that's all we're gonna do this year. And once we do that the following year, we will come up with proposals for what the policies, what the legal policies ought to be for dealing with these issues in a final report for the House of Delegates. <clears throat> so uh, I know this predates it a little bit, but was, so that, was this instrumental in um, adding anything to the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Ryan White Care Act? Or? The, the Americans with Disabilities, that's a good question. Okay. The, the, the negotiations over that were going on at the same time our deliberations were going on. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a, uh, one of the wonderful members of this commission, High Feldblum, uh, who subsequently became um, a commissioner of the EEOC under President uh, Obama, uh, was a member of my commission. She was also one of the lobbyists for the ACLU mm -hmm. with respect to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was a very useful connection for the commission 
to have to know what was going on in the legislative development. Uh, President, um, uh, I think President Reagan, um, would that be right? Or it was either President Reagan or President Bush appointed a commission. Oh, that was H.W. Uh, to investigate this. And, and that was also fortuitous because one of the members of the, that commission uh, was a law professor from Yale who's now a, an Episcopalian priest. Uh, As one does, yeah. <laughs> uh, Harlan Dalton, uh, who was my next-door neighbor in the Solicitor General's office. Uh, so that there was a certain amount of uh, interaction between the President's Commission and in our Commission as well. And um, so we did make these recommendations and with one tiny uh, amendment, the House of Delegates of the ABA adopted these resolutions. Uh, but between the white paper that we wrote uh, which turned out to be um, a 250-page book, a little shorter than the Mueller report. <laughs> uh, and our recommendations and the report in support of the recommendations, which was another 100 or so pages, uh, these were really the only two things that state legislators had to go on if they wanted to try to inject some rationality into public policy relating to HIV at the state level. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many people, both from um, state legislatures and from uh, uh, interest groups that lobbied state legislatures, uh, as well as judges, told me how helpful these two documents were to them because they were, uh, apart from a book that Harlan Dalton wrote uh, with some students at Yale, uh, they were the only things out there that provided any guidance at all. It's really interesting because that was going to be one of my questions of what the effects of these interest groups spearheading these, you know, issues that need to be discussed uh, in order to give some sort of light and guidance to legislatures. So I guess, uh, um, as a follow-up, what are some issues today that you think are in much need of uh, uh, action by public interest groups that you don't see many people partaking in? Before you answer that, yeah. and you can answer that, I have to <laughs> run to the bathroom. Okay. But just so you know. Okay. So you want to just wait or continue? You can answer that. Okay. That's a tough question. It's a tough question, but I think it's interesting uh, if you have... You know, I'm, I, there, there's certainly a lot of issues uh, that need to be ventilated better than they're being ventilated now. Mm -hmm. And to what extent um, interest groups are capable of ventilating those issues in such a polarized environment uh, is an open question, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because so many, uh, you know, for, for, rather than interest groups, let's call them NGOs, right. right? So many NGOs in this polarized environment are being tarred with uh, connections 
to one side or the other, that, you know, who is it that has the credibility uh, to start talking about these issues in a way that will command attention across a sufficient political spectrum that the conversation can actually be productive. Hmm. I think that's really the big problem right now. Right. Um, there's no doubt that you know, societies polarized to an, I mean, I would say unprecedented level because there's always been polarization. Um, but if it's not NGOs, uh, then what or who? Well, I'll right put difference? in a plug now for the uh, for the conference. The Law Journal is oh. sponsoring next Friday. Uh, Democracy in America, its promise and perils. I think it's yeah. yeah that's uh, really looking forward to that. I mean, I think that was you know part of uh, uh, the students' uh, impetus for for having that. You know, usually. Law Journal conferences are devoted to one fairly narrow topic, and and they decided this year that uh, that there was a range of topics that were all sort of related to the state of democracy in America uh, that were worth pursuing, uh, and that that it it wouldn't be a good idea to just have one topic for the uh, for the uh, colloquium but that it would be a good idea to, to have several that were all under this umbrella of, you know, where is our democratic society going? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it is, I mean, universities uh, have a problem because they're perceived by some people as being part of this polarization too. Uh, but, you know, if you have a wide enough diversity of universities who are addressing these questions, uh, then I think that could be very helpful. And I, I'm very hopeful that, uh, that this conference next week will, uh, will add to our understanding of these questions. What, what did I miss? <laughs> oh, um, we just, um, I followed up on the question about NGOs and public interests and how they're heavily polarized, and I asked for any other uh, outlets or avenues for organizations or individuals to, you know, take action if it's not through NGOs, and that's how we ended up talking about the colloquium gotcha. Gotcha. next next week, uh, which <clears throat> I'm looking forward to listening to what uh, Professor Chemerinsky has to say. It's a great uh, it's a great group of people, right. um, and a great uh, set of topics to talk about. So, um. I want to step back a little bit because I think we skipped uh, my grammar school years. Your grammar school years, <laughs> <laughs> not, not so I far think we back. We touched on those, <laughs> but I do want to talk about you uh, uh, and the Supreme Court and giving oral argument in front of the Supreme Court. I remember once in class, in constitutional law class, you said that when you stand in front of the Supreme Court, you really give is three oral arguments: one on the way to the Supreme Court, one in front of the Supreme Court, and one on your way back home. Uh, so maybe you can give us your perspective on how that experience was for you. Yeah, I think that's true of any argument you ever give anywhere. Uh, there's the one that you plan to give. There's the one where that you actually give, in fact. 
and then the argument that you wish you had given that you rehearse on the subway on the way back to your office. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, that's particularly true in the Supreme Court, I suppose, because uh, particularly now, not so much when I was in the SG's office, uh, but particularly now where the justices uh, are all over you from the moment you approach the bench. Uh, I only had that happen to me in one case uh, where Justice uh, Powell started asking me uh, questions before I even opened my notebook at the podium. I'm not even sure I was at the podium when he lobbed his first question at me. Uh, but the, the court's much more active today and, uh, and, you know, there is the art form of trying to weave into your argument uh, what you want to say despite the fact that you're limited to answering their questions. And, you know, that's the mark of a great advocate if you can do that. Uh, but even so, it's not quite as satisfying as... Uh, you know, having a little bit more coherence to the argument that you want to give. And the, the current court, uh, I think, is particularly difficult to argue before. And, you know, I've written an article on the subject, actually, with Megan Canty, who the former director, uh, associate director of the Advocacy Center, uh, in which we compared uh, oral argument in the Supreme Court uh, in a three-year period, 58, 59, and 60, with um, three years in the 2000s, I think 2010, 11, and 12, something like that. And we found that the justices uh, perform an oral argument in a much different way now than they did then. But there's some other background facts that make oral argument different. And one is that the court's hearing uh, uh, half or less than half the number of cases orally that they heard back in that period, uh, including the period that I was in the SG's office. Uh, they have uh, twice as many law clerks as they did then for half the number of orally argued cases, uh, which results, I think, in longer opinions and more footnotes. Mm -hmm. But it also results, I think, in their being far better prepared when they step out to hear oral argument than they might have been in the past, and probably have uh, a much better sense of what they think the correct answer in the case is than they would have had when they were hearing uh, lots of cases, you know, five cases a day. Uh, now they hear maybe five cases a week, uh, and that's a good week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was in the SG's office, uh, sometimes you would they would break your argument at lunchtime. Uh, the court rose at noon, regardless of how many minutes were left in your argument, and they came back at one. And you might just get an opportunity to say three words. 
and uh, you would have spent your lunch hour. The, the SG has an office at the Supreme Court, this little room that you can spend your time in when you're up there. And uh, you would spend your time with your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and apple, which is what I always took, and uh, thinking, how am I going to use the two minutes that I have left or the three minutes that I have left to best advantage? Uh, well, they don't do that anymore because they don't go all over into the afternoon. Um, but they used to stop like clockwork at noon. And in fact, my friend Harlan Dalton, uh, I shouldn't tell this story, but I will. Uh, Harlan, when he started in the SG's office, nobody told him that it was the practice of the court to rise at noon. And so in his first argument, uh, it got to be about five minutes to before noon. And uh, it was a, a good stopping place for his argument. And so he said, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think this would be a good time to break for lunch. And Chief Justice Berger, who did not have a great sense of humor, looked at him and he said, uh, Mr. Dalton, the court rises at noon. Please continue with your argument. And that's when you lost your case. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... You know, it's a different court with with half the cases, uh, twice the law clerks, and half the time for oral argument that it was in the 1950s. In the 1950s, in my time, it's what it was, what it is now. But in the 1950s, uh, you had an hour to the side rather than a half hour to the side. Um, and our... our um, our study showed that even given the fact that the argument time was twice as long, the justices speak more words now in an argument than they did then. That's so interesting. I wonder, I wonder any sense of who the trendsetter was? Like, who was the first ju justice who just said, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and occupy a lot of this air. And, and to add to Jake's question, I, I guess I also that wasn't want to, hard enough. <laughs> it, do you think the 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 availability f to consume oral arguments by the general public because it's in digital form now uh, does it put undue pressure on justices to say more and and get their voices well, heard? Not Thomas. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think, in a way, the way that oral argument has gone is in the opposite direction in that sense. Hmm. Uh, in the sense that back in the 50s, if you were a legally trained person, like the two of you, and you walked into the Supreme Court at the beginning of an argument, you would soon get a gist of what was going on. Uh, but now, because, and the reason was that the justices would allow you a little time, some justices, you know, sometimes a lot of time, uh, to give what you thought were the relevant facts and your theory of the case, so that a reasonably intelligent person would be able to follow what was going on. 
Uh, now you stand up and you start getting hit with questions and there's no context for those questions. Right. And so the man on the street who comes into the court or even the lawyer on the street who comes into the court who hasn't boned up on the case ahead of time, uh, and I would put newspaper reporters in this too, unless you are, unless you're uh, somebody who reports regularly on the court and knows that you have to read the briefs in preparation for reporting on the case, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be able to follow what was going on. Uh, and so I think in a way there may be more pressure, um, you know, in, in a sense, but there's really less pressure because nobody anticipates that that the public is going to understand what's going on at oral argument anymore. Mm. But I didn't answer your question, Jake. What was your question again? Uh, I don't know. I don't even remember. But um, I have another question, so we'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, now that we're talking about how the court has changed over time, and it really has, I mean, if you even think back to like when it was first started, Chief Justice Marshall, like the, the court just had one opinion, right? That was the decree of the court. I mean, and... Well, um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Well, uh, Marshall isn't the first chief justice. Right. John Jay's the first chief justice. He gives up the job because he thinks the court's never going to amount to a dam. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and until that, until Marshall becomes chief justice, uh, the justices follow the British system right. of seriatim opinions. Right. And uh, Marshall says, I don't like this. Right, right, right. Okay. So you're right about that. But it's, uh, it's after a while that he becomes... Right. And, and I guess... He's busy losing Marbury's commission before that. <laughs> I'm just trying to draw a picture of that the court has changed a lot over time. Yeah. Right. And now, these days, it's almost, you know, part of a lot of democratic primary contenders platforms that they want to change and reconfigure the court do you have any opinion on the wisdom of that i mean uh, have you been following this um, a lot of you know elizabeth elizabeth warren uh, pete Buttigieg, they all have this this platform of expanding the court and changing the way in which some of them are appointed to the court um, I haven't followed. I haven't oh, okay. read about those proposals. Okay. <clears throat> well, we can cut most of this. <laughs> but um, Pete Buttigieg, for instance, wants to expand it to 15 members of the court, 10 of which are politically appointed the way we have now. And then the other five are chosen unanimously by the 10 that are politically appointed. I, I don't know what the wisdom of that is, if there is any. It's like uh, the... Uh the party appointed arbitrators choosing the neutral, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, let's move on to your time as dean of a law school. How about that? And that was, which law school was that again? Washington and Lee. Washington, so Virginia. Um, how long were you, how long was it your tenure as? Uh, I was dean, dean for five years. Five years? Right. And at what time span was that? Uh, 94 to 99. So, so what, what was, what made you do the transition from private practice 
Um, the academic sector? Well, you know, I practiced a long time, uh, you know, basically 75 to, uh, you know, I graduated in 74 and I uh, went to Washington Lee in 94. So I practiced 20 years. Uh, and um, I, you know, I was sort of open to trying something new. It was a lot of interesting discussion in those days about uh, the relationship of legal education and legal practice, uh, how to make legal education more relevant, uh, and, and so forth. And um, I got a call one day, uh, and I think this is right, I think that the, the first I heard of this was getting a call from the president of the university uh, saying that they were looking for a law school dean and um, they had narrowed their list uh, and would I be interested in coming for an interview. And I thought, you know, 20 years, uh, I haven't interviewed for a job for a long time, maybe it'd be worth the practice. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and I went there and I was really sold on, uh, on the faculty to start with and the students. Uh, I think the first time I went, I only met with the president and the search committee, which in that case consisted of virtually the whole law school faculty. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, uh, I found out later that they had not been looking for uh, a practitioner uh, specifically, uh, that in fact the other two finalists uh, were both academics rather than practitioners, mm -hmm. and that when the dust settled I just happened to be the person that both the president and the faculty liked the best. So I want to get into the specifics of uh, how you felt as a dean, but just a quick question so I know how to contextualize my questions. Um, so 94 to 99, have you been... Tough time in legal education. Have you been in legal education since then? For the last 10 years. What? For the last 10 years. So there was an interim period. Yeah. Being, okay. All right. Um, well, let me let me tell you what, so you don't have to ask the question. Okay. <laughs> uh, after I stepped down as dean, I taught full time for a year, and then the second year, uh, I took a sabbatical, and I spent half the year teaching at the University of Warsaw, and the other half of the year being a visiting scholar at the University of London. And, uh, and then uh, my wife decided, uh, well, during that year, she was offered, uh, or I guess at the beginning of that year, she was offered a position at the University of Chicago. So we decided that we should move back to Chicago. And um, during that year, my former partners uh, said jokingly, you have the opportunity uh, to be the Jenner and Block lawyer who has come and gone from this firm more than anybody else in history. 
uh, so won't you come back and practice law? And uh, at that point, I decided that I would resume the practice of law. And I did that from um, uh, 2000, from the summer of 2001 until 2009, the summer of 2009, when I came here. Okay. <laughs> so I just wanted to contextualize that. Uh, so talk about your tenure as dean. Why was that such a difficult time? Well, it was a, a difficult time in legal education because, as you know, that in legal education, uh, until the last couple of years, we had seen a nationwide decline for, I don't know, five years or so of applicants to law schools. And that was also the case. The biggest decline in applications to law school before that one was the period 94 to 99. And so, for example, uh, we had a class of 125 students or thereabouts at Washington Lake, entering class of 125. I think that one year during the time I was dean, when this decline was just starting, we had 2,500 or 3,000 applicants for those 125 seats. Uh, the worst year, we barely made 1,000. And that was true all over the country. Uh, so that suddenly, uh, you know, you would think that your competition was UVA or William and Mary, UNC. Suddenly, people were telling you they'd been admitted to Harvard and they were considering Washington and Lee, both because we were going up in the rankings and because they thought maybe they could get some money to go to Washington and Lee uh, that they couldn't get to go to Harvard. So the both in terms of the number of applicants um, declining and the constantly changing parameters with which you were working in terms of who your competitor schools were uh, made it a very challenging time uh, for a dean and um, and you know one of my accomplishments was that during that time. Uh, we enrolled a class with the same entrance credentials, GPA and LSAT, the year that we had 1,000 applicants as we did when we had 3,000 applicants. Huh. How was that achieved? Uh, by not taking summer vacations, basically. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm serious that, you know, that's the time when you have the volatility, uh, when students get in off the wait list at other schools and there's this constant, you know, you're not sure who your entering class is going to be until the day that they matriculate. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so you have to work very hard over the summer, uh, of keeping the class as much of the class as you've admitted as you can. Um, I did things like I personally reviewed 
the uh, application files of all the admitted students and wrote notes to the students talking about something I found in their file that I thought was of interest to give the sense that this was a very small school that was a small community was really interested in individual development. Um, And you mentioned that there was shifts in the way that legal education was approached during that time too. Um, How has legal education changed over the years in your estimation? I mean, well, um, I think that that I think there's much more emphasis. I mean, it, it, it's easier, I guess, to talk about legal education from the vantage point of a student in my time, as compared to what legal education is like today. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, and you know, there were very few clinical opportunities, for example when I was a student. Uh, there wasn't much sense of building toward a capstone uh, experience in your law school career. Uh, it's much less sense of, um, of coming out of law school uh, with at least one area in which you had a superior kind of competence, right? And uh, and one thing that I really appreciated at Washington Lee, uh, that I think is largely true here too, that that uh, many of the faculty, uh, in fact most of the faculty, uh, who were very good teacher scholars, also had a substantial amount of practical experience in the practice of law, and uh, and I think that. That made them a little bit ahead of their time in terms of wanting to think about things like capstone uh, opportunities for students. Uh, I had a colleague, Lyman Johnson, uh, who was a business lawyer in Minneapolis before he uh, came to Washington Lee. And uh, he had a very forward-looking um, sort of view of how you sequenced courses if you wanted to maximize your potential as a corporate lawyer. And, uh, and so in the, in the third year, uh, students worked up to a course where they negotiated and papered a transaction as sort of the capstone experience of their law school career. And, uh, and I think there was, there was a lot of interest in thinking about things that way. Um, you know, I, I've laughed because Washington Lee now has this reputation for its third year curriculum. And as far as I can see, most of that curriculum was in place at the time uh, that, or the, at least the, the outlines of it were in place uh, during the time I was dean. Um, I expanded clinics considerably when I was dean. Uh, One of the things that, um, one of the problems I was confronted with was that we had a social security benefits 
clinic at the Western State Hospital in Stanton, Virginia. And uh, at that time, the state hospital was a long-term care facility. And uh, it changed so that it, was, it became a diagnostic center. And that meant that you would, a student would go and meet with the client this week, mm-hmm. go back for a follow-up visit two weeks later, and the patient wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that wasn't working. Uh, we needed to figure out another kind of opportunity that would be similar to that. And uh, by happenstance, I got a call one day from uh, an administrative law judge at the Department of Labor who had been uh, the representative of uh, the, I think, the, uh, the Judicial, the Administrative Judges Association or the Judicial Administration Division of the ABA on my AIDS commission. And he said to me, you know, I just came back from West Virginia where I was hearing black lung cases. And, uh, and I have this firm conviction that justice was not done as well as it could have been done because most of these claimants don't have lawyers and they're up against the top firms in Charleston. This is an area you could do something for. And, uh, and that was sort of the impetus for starting a black lung clinic, which to my mind was perfect clinical experience. The only drawback was that the clients were a long way away uh, and it required the students to travel a fair distance. But in terms of uh, the human element, the connection with other human beings that lawyering is all about, uh, these guys would come in with oxygen tanks, hardly able to breathe, uh, just tremendous experience for students to be able to represent people like that. And in addition, the black lung benefits regulations are a labyrinth uh, in terms of, of learning administrative law. This was a perfect experience for students. Mm-hmm. And when you add to that the challenges of the scientific evidence the medical evidence that students had to master to represent these clients, it turned out to be perfect, perfect clinical experience. And I sometimes am driving around and I'm listening to NPR and uh, occasionally I've heard stories about the WNL Black Lung Clinic on All Things Considered or some other. Uh, it makes you feel really good. <clears throat> All right, so I have a question, and you may or may not want to answer it, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Um, So I understand the importance of clinical experience during a law school um, career, and it does feel like that, you know, the law school experience uh, more and more is being oriented towards being practice ready once you leave the doors. But I wonder if that is at the sacrifice of something else, like... Uh, I think I always say this on air, but I'm going to say it again. The most important class that I took, I feel like, 
um, while I'm at Loyola is jurisprudence. I thought it was constitutional law. Well, so I always say this, that I wish that I had taken jurisprudence before taking constitutional law. And I feel like jurisprudence is so important because it connects you to the tradition of law. And it helps you understand, like, the philosophical underpinnings and, like, Mm -hmm. the red meat of the law. And one of the things that I loved most about that class is that I felt like it was this great arena for the free exchange of ideas. Like, it was the first time that I, as a more conservative student with libertarian leanings felt comfortable just, you know, sparring in the classroom in a school that is traditionally, this may have come as a surprise to everybody, is kind of left-leaning. Loyola, it's very social justice oriented. It's one of the things I like about it. But it does have this sort of chilling effect on free speech in the classroom. And I feel like this is a problem that is sort of unique at this point in time, but perhaps it's because of you know, environmental factors, the political polarization. Do you think that there are things that we should be doing to try to recreate what the academy is all about, where we're supposed to be, you know, confronting each other with ideas? And uh, how do we refoster that kind of spirit in people? Because I do feel like it is on the decline and it's not something that is just set in stone. It's very fragile and it's something that we need to take steps to, towards preserving. And, you know, I, I've had problems with this that I've come to you about, and you remember that. We don't need to go over it on air, but... Uh, do as you, I recall, we got that solved. We did get that solved, um, but do, do you see any of that? And Well, let me, let me answer uh, both of those questions, because I think there were two questions there. Yes. And, uh, and one question is about the expense of... Um, more clinical, more experiential learning uh, for the traditional kind of law school experience. When I was a dean, uh, this was something that I thought was really critical, was understanding that no matter how good we are in imparting skills, Uh, We're not going to make you practice ready Mm -hmm. on your first day. There's no way we can do that. That's something that you have to do uh, on the first and second and third and fourth days uh, and thereafter. Uh, But the, the main point I would make is that I feel very strongly that a law school has an obligation to do two things for a law student in this area. And one of them is to give you the skills, if you want them, that we're able to give you within the constraints of legal education. And that's not like being an apprentice to an 18th century judge, right? (laughs) Uh, That's the best we can do in the circumstances of modern society. That's one thing. But the other thing that I used to emphasize as a dean, and I believe is correct, is that we have to prepare you for a lifetime of learning. And that means more than imparting the skills that are necessary for practice readiness on the first day. That means imparting to you the values of the profession. It, it, 
means encouraging you to think about law in a wide, from a wide angle. Uh, and in this respect, you know, it, it, it means giving you, if you want to call them skills, the skills that are necessary to see law in a historical context, in a social context, in an economic context, and is the continuation, if you will, of a liberal education. And that is at least as important as giving you the skills that you need on the first day. And I think that law schools should do both of those things. Uh, and we're better suited, really, to do uh, the, the second than, than the skills part, as, as a matter of fact, uh, if we try to do it. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I like to think that uh, the conversation in my classes uh, isn't uh, stifling of opinions. I like to think, and you know, in a class of 70 or 75, it's a little hard to hear a lot of opinions on any particular issue on any particular day. That goes without saying. And that's why, in fact, I, I preferred teaching con law the year that, uh, because of Professor Zimmer's illness, we were still teaching it as a small section, and I taught two sections because he was ill. It was an awful lot of work to, to teach uh, twice as many contact hours. But in a way, I enjoyed it more because I had the same number of students, but I had them spread out in two different groups, mm -hmm. and it was easier to have that conversation with people in those smaller groups. And I hope that that is true in the small classes that I teach, that, that I try to appear to be open to opinions of, of different, of, of a variety of opinions. Uh, and I hope that that's encouraging to students both to express their opinions and to be open to other people's opinions that might not necessarily be theirs. Uh, because I think that we have, uh, you know, we have a terrible problem, as, as Nico and I were talking about earlier, of polarization in this country. And we have got to figure out ways to talk to each other. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if it falls uh, the responsibility falls on the shoulders of any one person, you know. I think it's, uh, it, it's almost a self-imposed, uh, it, it's like this social con contract that we all have with each other. And, but there are, like, you know, there are some people in the school that, like, if you say you're an originalist, that's a dirty word. You know, it, it happens. And it's, uh, I just, that's part of what my mission on this show is, is to just bring to the attention that, you know, just because people disagree on their policy perspectives or policy prescriptions doesn't mean that they disagree on the end goals. You know, so often we, we like to attribute bad motives and, and uh, bad faith to people with whom we disagree. Um, but the, one of the problems is we don't talk to people with whom we might disagree. Right, right. Well, <laughs> we don't even find out whether we disagree exactly, with them. Exactly, exactly, exactly. 
Um, well, I'm conscious of the time, but I do want to give you an opportunity to say anything um, that you might find encouragement to, uh, to young lawyers or, or students that are listening or anything of that, of that sort. Before we do, I do have a final question. It's not as challenging as Jake's questions, but I think it's interesting. So do you have a favorite case to teach? And and do you have? Is there a case that you Jake probably can answer that question? <laughs> you probably can answer the question. I think I can, but but uh, I'd like to hear it from you. And also, is there a case that you found throughout you know your years of teaching that students just seem to have a very hard time grasping or understanding? Anything to do with the interstate commerce clause? <laughs> oh no, they they walk away with it every year. <laughs> Um, you know, there, as, I, as I get ready for class every day, I think how lucky I am to be reading these great cases mm -hmm. and to be sharing these great cases with wonderful students. I really mean that. Uh, but, you know, con law in particular, I mean, there's so many wonderful cases. But I think, as you both know, that Justice Jackson is one of my particular heroes. And, uh, and I just think that the, the steel seizure, his opinion in the steel seizure case is such an insightful analysis, not only of the Constitution, but of lawyering, of human life, of politics. I mean, it, it is an endless source of of encouragement, I think, that somebody that smart can be on the Supreme Court and, uh, and, that, and giving you the benefit of that knowledge that he had, that wisdom, really, rather than knowledge, that wisdom. This is, this that is he the had. executive at his highest ebb. And yeah. yeah. Okay. I love that case, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people reduce it to, to that. Right, right. But there's but, so much more in it than that. And, uh, you know, I was just doing that case uh, earlier this week. And, uh, you know, so much of it is in this, you know, we could talk for another hour about the state of constitutionalism around the world as well as in the United States. But so much of that case seems to me to be the result of his personal experience at Nuremberg. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you get a glimmer of that when he talks about the Weimar Constitution and the fact that, that uh, once the, the emergency was declared, that was it. And he talks about putting this power, the difference between England and, and Germany being that in England the powers in Parliament to, to uh, suspend the normal situation, whereas the power in Germany in the, under the Weimar Constitution was with the executive and, and so on and so forth. So it's quite obvious at one level that he's been thinking about these things. But it seems to me that, that uh, you can go through the opinion and you can see where this distrust of emergency, uh, of uh, executive authority, uh, 
uh, is the product of his experience at Nuremberg and the wisdom that he developed by having to deal with the Nuremberg trials. That was also uh, Nino Scalito's favorite case, just R.I.P. Hmm. He said that. Um, well, I, you know, to, in fairness to Justice Scalia, uh, I, I want to point out that every year in my case, in my course, I point out how brilliant Justice Scalia's opinion in Rage Against Gonzalez is. That it, for those of you who are, who are handicapped when it comes to the Commerce Clause, <laughs> all you need to do is read Justice Scalia's concurrence in that case. <clears throat> well, Professor Sullivan, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It was thank fun. You. This was very interesting. Thank you for being here. And for Dialogue De Novo, I'm Jake Rome. I'm Nico Spina. And we'll be back next week. Bum, ba -dum, bum, bum, ba -dum. Ba -da -da.